Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Stacy Belf, who I met when I was working at State Street. Stacy is the head of consultant relations for State Street, a role she has held for the past 18 months. She started her career doing contracting work in the telecom industry and as a firefighter. She then went to law school, after which she worked for two law firms and clerked in a U.S. district court before becoming a federal prosecutor. She tried cases relating to violent crime, white-collar crimes, and cybercrime before joining State Street in 2015, where she's held a variety of roles since then. Stacy earned her undergraduate degree in psychology from Auburn University and her law degree from the University of Virginia. She's an active fundraiser of causes that help victims of sex trafficking, dating to some of the cases that she tried as a federal prosecutor. She and her family live in the Boston area. Stacy, welcome. It's great to have you on the show today. Thanks, JR. It's truly a pleasure to get to talk to you. Let's start at the beginning in your case. Where did you grow up and what was your first paid job? I grew up in a little suburb of D.C. called Sterling, which literally at the time had one traffic light in it. It's right next to Dulles Airport, if anybody knows where that is. And my first paid job was at the local movie theater scooping popcorn at the concession stand. So very unassuming. I started working when I was 14. So I've, I've been working for many decades now. When you look back at that first work experience, is there anything that you took away that you still hold with you today? Very much so. So through a shame set of events, the manager of this movie theater was fired and they brought in new management and they looked at the records and realized that I wasn't yet 16. And that was against company policy, even though it was legal in the state. And I got fired. And JR, I cried for days, this 14 year old kid. And I could look back on it now. And I think about it all the time of like, like that defined my value, which is so very silly. But you know, at that age, it makes sense. And so the thing I still hold is the intrinsic value is not defined by how you're currently where you stand with your employer. And sometimes really important to remember that. Yeah. I want to, not my first job, but maybe my first paid job because I mowed lawns as a kid. So, you know, other than that, I went to work for a department store the Christmas of my freshman year of college. And in the days leading up to Christmas, the guy who was working in the department with me basically showed me how to process sales on the register, but I was using his ID basically. So he was getting sales commission, even though I was you know, in this case, helping. I didn't know that that's how he was getting paid. Anyway, the day after Christmas, the managers sort of piece this all together and comes down and fires him on the spot. And she leaves me in the department alone. And so I then ended up spending a day processing returns. It was a day after Christmas. I think for my first day, I had like negative $3,000 in sales. And then she came down and I almost got fired because she says, you're not registered trained. I'm like, well, what did you want me to do? You left here by myself. So... Sometimes common sense doesn't always prevail in situations like that. And you just have to do what you do. 
Exactly. Especially when you're so young, you don't know kind of the way that it works. So absolutely. That's hysterical. How did you end up at Auburn and why psychology? So I was on my own nickel. I was paying for myself through school. And right before I finished high school, my father moved down to Huntsville, Alabama, so I could get in-state tuition. So Auburn was a whopping $1,500 for a full year's tuition in-state. And so that was the right number for me. I also really had been looking to go pretty far away from home just because adventuring spirit, and that'll probably be a theme throughout. Psychology, I really have always wanted to have a point of service. That's something very important to me. In high school, I had volunteered with the abused women's shelter for a couple of years. And I used to take care of the kids while they had their group meetings and the like, and really wanting to help people in that way. And so I thought I would be a practicing psychologist. So that's what I went to school for. But I'll tell you, just to look back and laugh, I was an engineering major, homage to you, an engineering major for a whole three days until my father left campus. So (laughs) I had the aptitude, but I really did love the people aspect. So that's You were just waiting until you had some distance for him to go back in and he wasn't paying. I get to pick whatever <laughs> I want, but I, just, but I let him stay. I let him think it while he left. He was only convinced that his daughter would starve to death as a psych major, but I made it. I'm okay. <laughs> what kind of things did you do in the summer between years of school? Anything interesting? Yeah. So as I said, I was on my own nickel. So I had two or three jobs. I tried to save up enough over the summer to pay for a lot of the next year. And so, my God, there isn't a job I don't think I've had. Retirement homes and waiting tables and lumber yards. And so, like, every job. And it was a great mix of all different kind of people. And while I was at school, I was also, while I was going to school, working in the catering department. And I still remember seeing all the time cards for all of the cafeteria staff and how many had an X for a signature because they didn't know how to sign their own name. Wow. And so seeing like these things as I'm growing up and the value of education is really quite important. And then my last year, the most interesting, I got an internship with back when Sprint was a really big company. It had Spin International did a joint venture called Global One, which was with France Telecom and Deutsche Telecom. So I got an internship there, a summer job there, helping their, what they called Ramia, Russia, India, Middle East, and Africa region. So I was supporting that my last summer. So that was very interesting, especially something I didn't have any experience in, which will also be a theme, but really figuring out how to make things happen regardless. Yeah. And I know we've talked about this before, but tell our audience how it is that you became a firefighter after you left school. (laughs) So actually, so when I finished at Auburn, I joined the Peace Corps. And I went to Chad and I really did enjoy it, but it's a lot of gray areas. You know, am I helping or am I causing more welfare dependency? They had been through a civil war for many years. And therefore there was a lot of sense of kind of entitlement. Like I have people all the time come to me, you're here to serve me. You give me your stuff because you're here to serve me. And when I came back, I still wanted a point of service, but I really wanted something black and white. I, when your house is on fire, there is no question as to you know whether you're helping and how to help. And right. I had seen some of that when I was at Auburn. I had some friends who were in it, and I said, you know, if I ever got the opportunity. So I was working during the day. I had returned back to Global One, and but my nights and weekends, there was no paid staff at the fire department, so we were it. So I ran with a crew every six days, and if it landed on a weekday. 12 hours and late on a weekend, 24. But it was really about still wanting to serve and find different ways to serve. And I, I really, really did enjoy it. I would imagine back then that there weren't a whole lot of women with you in the firehouse. 
There were not. When I joined, I was two in a company of over a hundred. And then ultimately there were three of us, but I stuck with it the longest just at that time. I'm sure there's other women who have done it since and longer, but you did always feel like you had to do better to be considered equal. So I was actually the rookie of the year, my first year, beat out all the guys, which must've caused them a lot of consternation. But I mean, there's something called a two minute drill. Can you go from civilian clothes to fully donned, ready to click in, in two minutes? And my standing time was 108. So it was like, how fast could you get it done? But you know, it's interesting. On the one hand, yes, there were not a lot of women, but my crew, for example, it was me and three like middle-aged guys who this is what they did, you know, when the families were at home. And it was like just having like your dad and run with. They were fantastic. There was never a question of how I get treated. And then there were others who, you know, like I remember one time somebody brought their kids into the firehouse and I was holding this guy's baby. And he's like, I really never thought of you as a girl. I was like, and I don't know what that meant, but he obviously had seen me in one linear way and didn't understand you could be multidimensional. I just didn't fit the box for him. So it was interesting, but I really don't begrudge. I think that the whole company was very supportive and I really felt connected to the different crews I ran throughout. When did you decide to go to law school? So really tough call that I ran one night where the long and short of it is a six-month-old baby had been beaten to death. And I didn't know that at the time. We were all sleeping in the bunkhouse and the woman just showed up and said, he's not breathing and handed him to me. And we could have an entire podcast telling the story of Devin and what happened. But the long and short of it is I testified at the criminal trial for that murder. And they were ultimately the father was convicted of manslaughter for it. But I had debated all through high school, but I thought lawyers were very unethical people. And seeing this play out in real time and that you could serve and be an advocate for victims, I said, I'm going to law school. Like, that's what I want to do. So it was, I applied that, that I think I testified in the spring. I applied in the fall and went the following year. I had three years in Global One after the Peace Corps. And my third year, I applied and got into law school and went with the purpose of becoming a prosecutor. I would imagine you were the only former firefighter in your law school class. (laughs) Yes. But I'll tell you, like, it was a fantastic, it changed me in ways. Like, there were literally times, not just in law school, but throughout when I've been under really high, you know, high stress, two different things. Number one, tremendous perspective. Like, Mm. you know, and that even happened when I was working at the same time, I would go to work and everybody's just hair would be on fire of was this T1 going to get installed on time or were we going to, you know, set up the ISP? And I'm, and I'm literally remembering the night before as I'm like carrying the dog out of the house while it's on fire. And it's like, you know, it's perspective, Mm. tremendously helpful perspective. And then the other thing that it, you know, really helped me with in law school and beyond was there were moments I could draw on something internal to me. There's a one fire I remember in particular where I got burned and it was just because it was so blazing hot. It burned me through my Nomex. And unfortunately, my officer left me in the fire. It doesn't matter as officer, but you should always be two on a line. And mm. he went back down the line. And so I was left alone in the fire and running the line myself. And that was such a complete, like... I can't even talk about the intensity and the focus that it brought. And there's moments when I draw upon that strength and that focus and that knowledge that I have the constitution, if that makes sense, to to handle 
whatever it is. So yes, I was the only firefighter in law school, but you know, there were people with very interesting backgrounds, but it definitely helped me there and beyond. Did you have a sense when you were in school of what kind of law you wanted to practice when you finished? Yeah, it was definitely because of why I went, I knew I wanted to become a prosecutor. There was some interesting tie together. So I had worked for three years in international business. And so I did feel that conflict between the two, mm. especially I was in law school when 9-11 happened. Mm. So my entire third year, I spent studying treaties on terrorism and how you know terrorism could be prosecuted and the like. And so I knew I wanted to prosecute and be in more of a public service side of the law. I did flirt a bit with some of that international. I actually even applied to the International Criminal Court, which was just getting formed, even though the US was not a signatory. And But I ended up taking a different path, continuing to be focused on prosecuting and federal prosecuting in particular as a result. But I, and I did both in my first year summer, I was, my internship was with the FBI. And then my third year, I did a clinic to prosecute in one of the local Commonwealth attorney's offices. So it was a consistent theme throughout, although I tried to tie the international. Did you give thought to joining the FBI or was that just a summer experience? I loved my time at the FBI. And it was just really for me, the decision between agent versus prosecutor. Mm. And an agent has to work a lot of cases that will never turn out. And for me, I felt much more that I wanted to take a case and be able to see it through to the end. And especially feeling, I don't know whether it was because of my debate or model United Nations, that I felt like I had oral advocacy skills. It would be kind of left on the table if I only ever did agent work. I wasn't opposed to it, but mm. the prosecution and the intellectual rigor and the work that you have to do around that appealed to me more than what I thought I had to bring, possibly if I had gone their special agent route. Yeah. So you went to Cleary Gottlieb. What kind of law did you end up practicing while you were there? So Cleary was my attempt to marry the two, international and criminal, which was very, very difficult. So Cleary does a lot of antitrust law, which is one of the fears that there's a lot of international intersection. And I loved it. I was in the DC office of Cleary as a New York-based firm. And I liked that. And I did that again in a later iteration because I found that you got the practice of a really big global firm, but being in a smaller office, you got the responsibility of as if you were further along. If I had gone to a bit main office, I would have done yeah. a lot of document review and I just wasn't really interested in that. But I really enjoyed it. Cleary, I still have fun for, I went to an event of theirs last week, very intellectual firm, very, very intellectually dedicated. And I saw that in a lot of the people there. How did you end up then doing the clerking that you did for the U.S. District Court in Maryland? So I actually had the clerkship before I joined Cleary that when I was in law school, you applied two years out. It's changed many times ever since. But so when I was beginning my third year, I had decided by then that I wanted to do a clerkship, mainly because I'd really become focused on federal prosecution. And that's really one of the things that they want to see. And I always wanted to see the other side as well, see what it was like actually in chambers. So I applied my third year. But then I went to clear, but clearly knew I was leaving at the end of a year to go and fulfill my clerkship. And the judge that I found, again, me looking, I wanted, if you do a clerkship, I intentionally sought out a district court judge to let you work on criminal cases, because not all of them do. Most of them just give their law clerks the civil docket. But I knew that this judge did everything. And he also was on something called the International Judiciary Committee. So he used to travel overseas and speak on the rule of law. So it was still very much speaking to my love of both criminal and international. Yeah. I was still trying to one foot on the dock, one foot on the boat. <laughs> so Yeah. Then you went back to a different firm. You went to Ropes and Gray. 
So yeah, so I definitely at that point had decided that I didn't want to limit myself to antitrust. I was time to give up the ghost on international and just know I'd find another way to feed that hunger. I knew ultimately my husband is from Boston. And I knew that we wanted to get here. So it made sense to go to a very Boston-based firm, even though I was still in D.C., but they had a really robust government enforcement practice. And so I would get to do a lot of things. I worked on an Enron case. I worked on a lot of the pharmaceutical litigation that was happening. There's just a lot of very timely litigation that was happening in the government enforcement space that I got to be a part of and conduct depositions as well. In terms of culture, were the two firms similar? Were they different? Oh, very, very different. And very different. Like I said, Cleary was very intellectual. Certainly Ropes was intellectual as well, but it was known as like an old storied Boston firm. And you saw that, but they had a lot of very local ties into their local governments as well. In addition to their international presence, they had law offices overseas as well. I found the culture of Ropes to be a little more personable. Cleary was much more intellectual, but they were both fantastic places. There's no no downside to either one. I'm feeling very grateful for both. So then you became a federal prosecutor. Yes. And that's an interesting thing about how I did it, because it's a very difficult job to get. And I know this from my work late when I was inside, and you have hundreds of applications for one or two slots. Before I ever submitted my application, I was able to say, like, I had worked for a clerkship. I had actually been a judge back in law school. I had talked to, I mean, anybody who would speak to me about working as an AUSA, I would take them to lunch or dinner or whatever else and just learn everything that they knew, who else they may be connected to and everything else. So that by the time I interviewed for it, I went to my first interview and it was actually very atypical. The sitting U.S. attorney decided he was going to do first round of interviews, which is unusual, but he figured I'm not wasting my prosecutor's time doing interviews if they're not, if the person I don't think to be viable. So the the sitting U.S. attorney was Rob Rosenstein. I had actually, while I was still clerking, called him when he was the, through an introduction by my judge, called him when he was the deputy attorney general, deputy assistant attorney general for tax division. And even then had talked about wanting to be a prosecutor and how do I get there? And so I made it through that round of interviews. Next round of the five people who interviewed me, I had already talked to three of them about becoming a prosecutor someday. The next round of interviews, like it was, I had done so much pre-work. There wasn't a single interview that I had not talked to anybody and shown my long-standing interest in it. And yeah. some of them had seen my work as a clerk. Some of them had seen me through this, but it's a very hard job to get, but I really target it in a very holistic way because it was so important to me. Yeah. And you know, that really comes through, right? I mean, when you've interviewed people, I've interviewed people and you have somebody come in who's really prepared, right? And is thoughtful and committed. You're going to think harder about them, even if they maybe don't have the best something, right? On paper, because there's just that intangible that you know you're going to get to experience every day. It's so hard in interviews to really necessarily convey the full job that somebody is applying for, as well as to know all the capabilities exist for that job. And whether it be through all of my intentional networking and discussions about my commitment to the job, or because they'd seen me as a clerk, knowing that I was sitting through their trials and cases, they knew that I knew exactly what I was getting into. Also from my prior experience doing the clinic in law school. So 
I really found a way to show the whole of me as a candidate independent of just the job interview. The job interview almost to some extent felt like a formality. Even in one of them, it was, okay, how do we get you to the next round? So, <laughs> so you know, it was really a life's goal to get there and I had done the work. Sounds like it. How did your prior law firm work, your work as a clerk prepare you for being an assistant U.S. attorney and what was just completely new? Yeah, it's funny. In some ways it really did. In some days it didn't. It did in the sense of like in a law firm, you almost have unlimited time. It's by billable hours. So you're going to run everything to ground. You're going to do the full, the work to be done. You get to the U.S. attorney's office and you're given a slice of time. You have to know what's important, but because you've done the work when you had unlimited time, you can say, this is the triage. This is what matters. And this is what I'm going to focus on. And also at a, the U.S. Attorney's Office, you're flying sometimes and getting enough time to do the briefing can be difficult. I swear there isn't an appellate brief I ever wrote during business hours because there's just so hard to do in the day to day. And so having had all of the training on how to write persuasively and succinctly, it's very difficult, I think, to get that in the way that the U.S. Attorney's Office was structured. Things that it didn't help, that's just the stuff, picking a jury. I've been mm-hmm. three years of law school and two year, three years of legal experience. Nobody had ever once talked about how you pick a jury. Interesting. And it is definitely more art than science. And I learned, and people had very different philosophies on it. It was a known thing. And this is just a side story, but most prosecutors will not put a teacher or a scientist on a jury, full stop. Teachers have trouble judging people. Scientists want things to a measure of exactitude that doesn't exist in the legal world or in any other world other than science. So it's interesting how there's those whole things you just have to figure out as you go. Yeah. I know you tried some pretty tough cases. What was that like? It was intentional on my part. So I'll take a step back. In both of my, I was in two U.S. attorney's offices, first down in Maryland and then in Boston. And in the U.S. attorney's office in Maryland, I was in Greenbelt, which sits right on the Beltway. Everyone does everything. I had wire fraud, mail fraud, but I also had guns, drugs, and thugs. And then, which was good because you got really that white collar practice. It could be a multi-year case, but you also got cases that kept you in court regularly. And then when I moved to Boston, I was in major crime. So again, you can get a real amalgam of cases. But very intentionally through it all, a couple of years into the U.S. Attorney's Office, I raised my hand and became the Project Safe Childhood Coordinator. So it meant I took on about a quarter of my docket being child exploitation cases. And that was very Mm. intentional. You may go all the way back to when I interned for the Abuse Women's Shelter. I had a very dedicated purpose around trying to help child victims. And when they offered it to me or when they asked me to take the role, they said it's soul crushing work, but very redeeming. But that was exactly apt description, you know, but I tell people in some extent, it's kind of like giving blood. I can give blood. It doesn't bother me. Some people giving blood, it's really a hard thing to do. I can't say it doesn't bother me. There were really tough days in those cases. And you frankly, and it probably goes a little too much detail, but you set up parameters to try to make it work. By then, by the time I took it, I had my first child. I had not Mm. yet had my second. And you try to find ways to not take it with you. There's like a triage to how you deal with the evidence. So one of the things is you called it Victim Free Friday, which is you tried not to watch really disturbing, horrific content on Friday because it would infect your whole weekend. When you're dealing with evidence, if you were dealing with videos and photos, they go down levels. You start off with photos. We start off with descriptions, but that didn't last very long. Then you actually look at the photos. Then if you had to, you'd watch the videos, but sound off and dead last was sound off because the screaming was just something you'll never Mm. get rid of. 
And so you find a lot of ways to mentally operate to be still the best you can be, even though you're caring a lot. But there's a lot of talk there of secondary and tertiary victims where it's not, you know, you're caring things that are really can be very tough. That was my choice. As much as it was difficult work, I absolutely loved feeling like I was making a difference. And I still look back on that and know that some of the best cases, as I said, the best victims I ever had are the ones that I never had. The cases mm. where I knew I dealt with real predators, it wasn't a qu- question of if they would harm again, it was when and how much. And for those people who I still know them by name, and I won't repeat them all, but people who will sit in jail for the rest of their life, I know that a lot of kids have been saved as a result. And I still am very proud of that. And to be clear, I mean, I tried 12 cases and not all were, very few were in child exploitation. Most of those cases plea. So my cases, I did a little bit of every type of case and I I liked all of that work. I really was driven by a sense of justice. So it definitely made the tough times a lot easier to know what the end goal was that you were working towards, but especially with the child exploitation cases. Yeah, understandably. So you did that for eight years. Yes. Yes. Five down in DC or right outside in Maryland and then three up in Boston. Then you made the decision to leave active law practice, which I can understand. Um, <laughs> but rather than me assume what actually drove the decision was just the toughness of the work or something else. No, you actually might be surprised. I think I, I mean, I went to law school to do it and I thought I'd do it for the rest of my life. It was actually the move. I had loved being outside of DC and really loved the work and the dockets. And then you got to Boston. And frankly, it's a vestige of Whitey Bulger. There was so many levels of approval and review and so much bureaucracy. You really start to lose your personal contribution. Yeah. You know, that by the time it's been reviewed and re-reviewed and re-reviewed, it's like I'm a cog in a wheel, but I'm not able to make the same meaningful difference. In DC, I might turn 50 defendants a year. In Boston, you can't do more than 10. Because it's so much bureaucracy to move a case for. Now that's back then. I think it's changed. And, you know, I don't know that that is at all the way it is, but I looked at it and I said, I'm sole breadwinner for my family. You know, my husband stays home with our kids. And I was willing to do that as long as I felt like I was making a really meaningful contribution. But when I really felt that the work that I was doing now had been my personal contribution was so diminished that I was no longer making that impact. I thought it better to step away, go back into the corporate life that I really had enjoyed and find other ways to fill my point of service because it's important to me that I always do have one, but I could fill it in other ways. And probably, I won't lie, you know, I know at least part of it was, it was probably a kindness to my kids to not be full-time litigator, not be full-time, always caring victims cases. You know, it definitely probably made things a little easier for them. Yeah, I'm sure. How did you then end up at State Street? Why State Street of all places when you were leaving the law? Very germane to Pathwise, I think. I really went on a journey. I thought I was going to do the U.S. Attorney's Office for the rest of my life. And I said, okay, we're going to make another pivot. At this point, I'd already gone from telecom to law. And here I go law. And I said, I really want to look at this and decide what I want to do next. I spent months talking to anybody and everybody about their careers, what they do, what the opportunities were. I had lunches and dinners and drinks and coffees with all over Boston as I was figuring out what I wanted to do. I ended up with kind of two different paths emerging before me. One was a forensics firm. The way that I would say it is like, you know, if you're a target or a major, major company and you get a cyber hack, this is the company you call in who immediately locks everything down and does a full investigation and tracks everything down. And that was developing as one path. 
And then the other was State Street. Like I said, talk to everybody under the sun and four different people totally unconnected to each other. One in D.C., one in North Carolina and two in Boston all said I should talk to this woman, Alyssa. Alyssa, when I was at Ropes and Gray in D.C., Alyssa was the lawyer with the office next to me. (laughs) How random that we both moved to Boston. She happened to be at State Street and I'd already been looking at State Street. I wanted, if I was going into corporate life in Boston, I wanted a company big enough that I felt that it would really have the global presence that I wanted and have the amount of basically that I could attain a level of responsibility and impact with the corporation that I wanted. So I met with Alyssa. So I'm assessing the two options. I met with Alyssa. She was ready to hire me into compliance within SSGA, which is the investment management arm of State Street. But she said, you know, with your resume, I really should let my boss talk to you, who was the chief compliance officer. He interviewed me as well for a different role, Volper compliance officer. And what I just have to point out, because these are really two really classy people, in my opinion. He said to Alyssa, I want to hire her. She told him, I want to hire her. He said, you can have her. She said, no, let Stacy decide. So they told me that I had two different opportunities and what was more appealing to me. So then, and meanwhile, when I was looking still at this forensic firm, I had not yet shut it down. What I came to discover is the two leads were diametrically opposed as to what the role should do. And I could sense very quickly that this was going to be a hard tension, if not a break point between the two of them. So I really settled more on State Street because I also was really engaged by it. I was really engaged by going back to corporate life where we're all on common purpose. Frankly, after eight years in the government, I loved the idea of a premium on efficiency and results as opposed to kind of just continuing for the wheels to turn. So I looked at the two offers that were before me and chose the compliance officer. It was a global role in an area that just was getting off the ground because the Volcker rule had just been passed and no one knew it. And it was where I thought I had the best ability to leverage my skill set, which I was better able to articulate. I was all along this way able to better articulate my what I bring to a position because it certainly wasn't expertise in the financial industry or compliance or Volcker. It was really about my ability to execute. And that's what I, you know, I'd by then come to know that whatever it was, it's a trial date. It's going to happen. I mean, I know all the things that's going to happen before we get there, but it's going to happen. And so it was very appealing to me. And that's what I took. I did know from get-go that it was likely an entree back into the corporate life and compliance was a good way in the door. I didn't expect I would stay in compliance, but it was a very intentional choice. I chose not to go in-house counsel or go back to a law firm. I'd had great experiences, but the business of law didn't really like interest me. And if you're going to corporate law, you're managing external counsel. It was like to me taking the worst parts of being a lawyer and that would be your day-to-day civil discovery or you know other things. And you would manage outside counsel, but you wouldn't actually be like hands dirty doing the work. And that didn't appeal to me. So you've done a lot of different things over the yes. years. Do you feel like at this point you know who you are, you know what you want to do, you found a home or are there so, future chapters out there for you? I think future chapters, I'm going to answer that in the micro and then answer it in the macro. In the micro, like, you know, my current role is global head of consultant relations, which again, it's another iteration of something that I got hired into where there was like, I didn't have any experience with consultants or sales, which is what the role is. And I bring that up because the interview process for this was the best of any job I've had because I'm much clearer on my value proposition. One of my friends, I don't know that I want this title, but calls me the executioner, which is whatever something needs to be done and executed on, 
I can do it. And so when I went through this interview process, you know, I met the various, because each of my jobs at State Street, Volker Compliance Officer, I was in alts and doing first, like working under the chief operating officer there, and then CRD and Alpha. Each of these jobs have been, maybe some of them took articulable skills, but a lot of them were just something absolutely needs to be assessed, designed, rebuilt, and turned into BAU. And so in this most recent job, I got the very standard question is, you have no experience in this area. What makes you think you can do it? And I said, if you think experience with consultants is what's needed for this job, you fundamentally don't understand where you are and what needs to happen. And to come at it with that level of just bravado, but I really did believe it, which is prosecutorial edge. (laughs) It was a prosecutorial edge, which you can imagine at executive leadership, that's a dicey road to walk, but it's very much challenging of like, I know what it takes when there is nothing there and you have to build from ground up. Do you know what it takes? And I actually even turned that later in the interview in which there was when the standard, do you have any questions? Like, well, yeah, I, I really do. I've come to learn that for me to execute, I need management support and engagement. And I'm looking at this role that you've taken four months to hire, you've downgraded and you've leveled. And I'm concerned that you really are invested in this enough. So not only did I stand for myself, I turned it back around. This I share that only because you asked specifically, do I feel like I know what more of who I am, what I'm looking for? This last changeover was a real opportunity, which I embraced that I am not going to be somebody who shows 20 years of subject matter expertise in a specific area. I'm a change agent and you bring me in because you want execution. And I can show that through every single job I have had all the way back to global one when we installed internet systems in Africa and the Middle East. You know, it's just about getting the job done, whatever it is. That was the micro question, if you can believe it. The macro question, or maybe it's the look back versus look forward. That's the better way to capture it. The look back versus the look forward. Do I think that I'm in a job I'll do for the rest of my career? No. I definitely think that there's more opportunities. I need, I'll need new challenges. And I'm sure there's a retirement career in there somewhere. I have continued to have a point of service and I have served on a board for an organization who helps children recovered from human trafficking to reclaim their lives and get basically come back to owning their own lives. And I could see myself in a retirement career running a nonprofit or something along those lines so that I would dedicate more time to that. In the interim, I think that there'll be many more iterations. I like to have a seat at the table. I want to have a, be a part of the conversation that's really driving both the strategy and the execution on that strategy. And I'll be transparent that part of my way of getting to make sure that I'm in those conversations is right now, I'm looking at various board opportunities. I've been starting to apply to different board opportunities to bring a very unique set of circumstances to that conversation, kind of a Swiss army knife of law, but sales, but business, but you know, a little bit of everything. So looking forward, I think that there'll be more iterations. I think I'll probably end up staying in corporate life and, you know, and I really do like it. And I find that I have, I have talents there and can execute there, but there'll be a retirement career too. Yeah. You've talked a lot about both strengths that you've leveraged along the way and passions that have kind of fueled your decisions. What have you worked on developing in yourself along the way and how have you gone about that? Oh, <laughs> patience. And JR, you, you could say it. And anybody, you know me enough to know that you, you would say that the ability to really wait things out and let them develop, I've gotten much better at that and really being comfortable with that play out. But that patience 
the micro too of in conversation, really waiting and letting the conversation develop because that litigator in me just wants to jump in and object <laughs> before yeah. you're done with the sentence. And so learning how to have patience for the conversation to naturally flow. And that way you can be much more impactful. So that's one area, executive presence. I have a lot of joy and a lot of exuberance and a lot of passion. And that can people can misread that to think that I'm not very intellectually dedicated or that I am, I hate to think flighty, but maybe. And so having to really modulate that for the audiences, just because people are not used to high energy level, but also just as much intellectually inclined, logically inclined and thoughtful and strategic and outcomes. People think the two don't go together. So I've had to be very intentional about that. So that's the first two I can think of. I know you've managed teams along the way. What kind of leader do you try to be for your teams? I think of it in two ways. First of all, for them as an individual and then for them as an employee. Individually, I have a strong belief that if you work for me, you have given me a portion of your career and I owe you things for that. I owe you development. I owe you a path. I owe you where you're going. And I very much embraced, I think, a more recent mindset, which is understanding that when you have really good people and really talented employees, they're going to move. And so you accept that you have them for a finite period of time and you develop as much as you can and you help them to create as much impact as they can in that time. But you very much embrace that they're not going to stay forever. I think, I don't think anybody could put up with me for that long, say, you know, for decades, save maybe my husband and my kids. So that's as you as an individual, I really do try to be a manager that's focused on their development. Professionally, or I'd say as to the work, I've been told that I have a very strong leadership style in the sense that I share vision and I'm consistently showing where I'm going such that it's easier for my team to navigate their respective areas of responsibility. I don't ever want to micromanage. I find that that is an incredible waste of my time and employees' time. So I'd really much rather give you end goals and then help you to get there. Like give you, whether it be guidance, whether it be support, backup, My leadership style is very much one being outcome oriented, but not strictly, you know, have you given results? It's outcome oriented, driving what the outcome we're trying to get to, and then enabling you, empowering you to get there and making sure that you have the support and otherwise to do it. What's important to you when you're hiring? You know, what do you Mm -hmm. look for in the people that you want to bring into the organization? Leadership. And I mean that because when the sense of that is really demonstrative of somebody's ability to drive forward, even when there is an obstacle or confusion, clarity and thinking and leading that leadership, even if you don't have a team, but really showing that you are, you can decide on what the next steps are and understand that they may not be right, but you're going to keep moving forward. So that is definitely something that I look for. One of my, in every job description I've ever posted, a absolutely required criteria is a good sense of humor. And that is not fluff. I think that nothing ever always goes according to plan. And if you don't have a good sense of humor about it, it's going to be a detriment to you. So that is literally one of my hiring criteria and I do stick to it. Yeah, fair enough. It does matter. Got to like the people you work with and you got to have fun together. Absolutely. I spend more time with them than I do my own mother. I may as well. We all should enjoy each other. Yeah. What do you do to recharge your battery? Keep yourself energized. (laughs) 
I run and now I mix that up a little bit to bike and swim. I picked that up when I was prosecuting the cases, you know, constantly litigating and especially victims work. It just being able to go out and really hit the pavement and run it out was a really big asset to me and kind of what I think helped me most is to really overcome just tough cases. I can't sit still, so I knit. <laughs> because I can't even sit to watch a movie. And it allows me to do that, which is a good thing. It's a point of service for me as well. I actually, what I do is I knit baby hats and I give them to the local maternity ward. And so I'm up to something over a hundred or something now, which I enjoy. And then I would say the third is, like I said, the point of service. I do give a lot of time to the organization, my life, my choice that I'm on the board and I'm co-heading their fundraising. So every year we step up to try to hit our target goal. And it's a lot of time, but very worthwhile, especially in the times that I spent with the kids, yeah. watching them to come back to their own life and through some incredibly difficult circumstances. So I'd say those, and all of that is of course, missing the number one main thing, which is my kids. And I yeah. spend, I have two wonderful children. Of course, my children, the best children ever. I'm not biased even a little bit. And so spending as much time as I can, I actually have taken on coaching my daughter's soccer team, which is a lot given the time that I have. But the first time I went out and saw her play a game and there wasn't a single female coach, I said, yeah, this can't happen. So yeah. I got to find a way to make it work. Yeah. I don't think you're the first mom that's had that observation and is dived in as a result. Yeah. And I look nothing but tremendous respect for the dads that do it. It's just that I did play soccer from when I was very young and really wanting to to have that role model available to kids. I don't know that anybody thinks that I'm a good chaperone, but <laughs> but definitely to have at least see another woman out on the field. So yeah. What would you do differently if you had to do something over again? Oh, that's tough. That is tough. And I say that because I'm very conscious of doing something different means I may not get the same outcome. Yep. And so am I willing to risk another outcome? And I don't know that I would. Yeah. And that's not to say I didn't make mistakes. Oh, I made mistakes. But even the mistakes are educational. So I don't know that I would do something differently. That's kind of where I've come to as well. That, you know, it's like you've had the life journey you've had, right? The good, the bad, the ugly but put you where you are and you have no idea if you made a decision differently back way back when have affected the good things, not just maybe the bad and the ugly. Absolutely. I think so. I struggle to think that I would risk it. That's not in any way vain. I'm, I'm not saying you know life is perfect, but I yeah. feel very honest about where I am. That is definitely function of the choices that I made. And I feel very grateful for that. Yeah. So summing it up, what are the top career lessons that you'd want our audience to take away? Find your value proposition and own it. Absolutely. To know what is it you bring to the table and being confident in that, being able to articulate that and to know that that may not be reduced to a byline. As I go up against people with a lot longer experience, either in the different subject matter areas or in the career, the field that they're in, it has been absolutely essential for me to know what I bring to the proposition. And then if they choose not to take it, they choose not to take it, you know, yeah. but at least you know what you're bringing to it. And then that way there's a lot less emotional about the process because then it's just, you know, a selection process for whatever that person feels is what's needed for the role. Awesome. Well, we will stop there. This has been great. One of the things that amazes me about this process of doing discussions like this is, you know, you and I work together for years, several years. And I mean, I knew the broad strokes of your your career, but I learned a lot in this conversation that I didn't know before. And 
it's funny how, you know, you sort of take up with people that you work with. And in a lot of cases, you just never really get down into the details of kind of how they got there. But yeah, no, it was actually really nice because you and I, you know, beyond work also become friends. And it's nice to have to share with you some of the more color that we haven't always gotten to talk about at work. Yeah, absolutely. No. Stacy. thanks. I really appreciate it. So thanks for doing this. No, thank you. It truly was a pleasure. And I love what you're doing in this space. And maybe if that's the one wish is I wish I had something like this back then to kind of really help explore all the options available. So thank you for doing it. It was great having Stacy on the show today and giving her a chance to share her winding career journey and learnings along the way. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io where you can find access to a range of career content, coaching, community, and courses. If you'd like more regular career insights, become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.